Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast where we're talking everything about anything. We're assigning you homework, we're talking about it. It's kind of like a podcast book club. Uh, I'm your host, Pete. I am uh, currently not getting sick, but instead simply coming down with allergies, or so I'm telling myself. Uh, and with me is my co-host. Uh, I'm Martha Sullivan, and I simply do not have time to be sick right now. Great. And in our third chair this week is... I'm Marin Hegman, and I have succumbed to the illness and am ready to watch even more pop culture after this in my process of feeling better. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we're just, a, we're just a fun bunch today. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the sniffling episode of Did You Do Your Homework? Um, so this is our 15th episode. And our theme today is going to be forgiveness. Uh, but before we get into the episode proper, it's only fair that we share with you our pop culture credentials. These are the things that we have been consuming right before we started recording this podcast, uh, without any filter or, uh, you know, uh, cherry picking to come up with cool things. Um, so, Martha, let's start with you. Uh, well... I discovered recently that Hulu has all of the previous seasons of Top Chef available on it, so I have been watching a lot of that. Um, I'm currently watching uh, the season where Stephanie Izzard wins, uh, who is one of my favorites. She's a local Chicago uh, chef. She was the first woman to win the show, and after she went or after she won, she went on to open the Girl and the Goat, which is one of my oh. favorite restaurants in Chicago. Yeah, that's I've heard only great things about that place. It is a very good season, although you can tell that it first aired about ten years ago. I think um, the quality of the uh, the quality of the filming is not super awesome. Uh, but Top Chef is one of my very favorite reality shows. I think it's one of the few where you actually, like, it's a little bit like, um... British Baking Show? The, it, well, it's it's that only a very American, which means everybody is super catty and mean to each other. Mm. Um, Project Runway is the one I was trying to think of, where, you know, it's it's reality TV where the, the contestants actually have to be legitimately skilled uh, in order to progress. So... I'm a big fan of watching very talented people cook food, so that's what I've been enjoying recently. I think it was Top Chef that I tried to get into after binging like three episodes or three seasons of um, British Baking Show, and I couldn't get into it because of the Americanness and the the, the backbitingness. Like, I want to see really good chefs make really delicious things, but I don't care about the infighting. Um, but this this season you're talking about, I might get into because Chicago Pride and stuff. Yeah, watch it. It's season four. Um, they the very first episode they all have to make a deep dish pizza, uh, which is super fun because most of them have never done that before. Um, um, but yeah, like they do a tailgating party for the Bears. They do a catering event at Lincoln Park Zoo. It's it's very very Chicago. Um, and yeah, Stephanie's awesome. Sweet. All right, Marin, what is your pop culture credential? Um, so when I began sipping my coffee and started to become a human again, I was looking through my Twitter and I followed the wonderful City Lab from the Atlantic Magazine, which I strongly suggest everyone follow. Um, and I ended up reading a really interesting article with the somewhat, shall I say, misleading title, um, How Bonnie Vares Saved Eau Claire. Um, which was talking about da Eau Claire's downtown revival and the, the efforts led by many people in the city, not just Bonnie Vare, um, to revive its downtown and to ensure its continued growth. So what, what connection does Bonnie Vare have to Eau Claire? Uh, he grew up there. He went to high school and college there. Um, oh, okay. He, yeah, and I and I believe he I just, still I had no idea. lives there. He, I think All he right. lived in the Twin Cities for a hot second, um, and then promptly moved back. And and I think that's why he chose it as the location for his Eau Claire Fest. Is is like, hey, get all my music friends to come to my town. Makes sense. Cool. 
Uh, well, for myself, uh, speaking of music, yesterday Iron and Wine's new album came out. Uh, it's called Beast Epic, and I've been listening to it basically nonstop. Um, I'm a huge Iron and Wine fan. Like everyone, I got into them with the uh, uh, Garden State soundtrack, where uh, he does that great cover of Such Great Heights. Um, and then, you know, I continued following. Uh, his last album I wasn't super impressed with, uh, Ghost on Ghost. It was a little too uh, produced and a little too instrumenty, like he had a, a serious horn section going on. Um, this is definitely much more return to form. He's singing beautifully. Uh, it's way more stripped down, much more him with his acoustic guitar and other stuff. Um, the two singles I have been in love with since they've come out, and the rest of the album basically holds up to that. So uh, I'm likely going to go out later today and get the vinyl of it. So um, Beast Epic by Iron and Wine is my pop culture credential. I feel like the only exposure I have to Iron and Wine is the song they did for the Garden State soundtrack. <laughs> if, if you like that, you'll like the rest of what he does. Um, All right. The early stuff especially is like classic singer-songwriter, like dude with a guitar and an enormous beard. Um, <laughs> like, he exactly fits the image you have in your mind of him, yeah. which is somewhat delightful. Wonderful. Oh, no, I think I saw him play at Jazz Fest. What? You've done? Well, I, I haven't. I, I've <laughs> never seen him live. And you're like, I don't know if I've ever heard this guy. Oh, wait, maybe I saw him live. <laughs> I'm sorry. I saw a lot of people at Jazz. I've been to Jazz Fest twice. Um, and I saw a lot of people. And for most of it, I was drunk and or like dizzy with sun. So I saw a lot of things at Jazz Fest. <laughs> a little New Orleans doubt, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. All right. Well, let's get into the uh, the episode proper then. <laughs> Um, as I mentioned at the top, this episode is going to be about forgiveness. Um, to give you a sense of where we're going with this episode and with this theme, we've got a couple discussion questions. Uh, they'll be posted on the blog as well, but I'll do a quick rundown of them now um, so you have a sense of where the conversation is going to be going before we do a quick review of the three homeworks that we assigned and then get into those discussion questions. Um, so first, we're going to be asking... How successful are characters in achieving forgiveness? Um, and we might be looking at as well what makes a successful versus an unsuccessful character. Are there any commonalities there? Um, we'll be uh, asking, should characters pay a price in their quest for forgiveness? And if so, what is a reasonable price to pay? Uh, this might be a case of the price is commensurate with the act that requires forgiveness. Uh, we'll get into that later in the discussion. Uh, we're going to be asking, does forgiveness need to be reciprocal? Um, we'll take a look at that. If Can you forgive yourself if, you know, if, if the other person hasn't forgiven you? Can you, uh, can someone else forgive you if you haven't forgiven yourself? Uh, that sort of idea. Um, we'll be asking, what function is forgiveness playing in the narratives? And finally, uh, and this is what I'm pretty interested in, are forgiveness and absolution the same thing? Yeah, I added those last two um, because those were uh, questions that I had been thinking about uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks. So I, I thought they might be interesting to touch on. Yeah, I, I think that forgiveness and absolution, definitely, that'll be an interesting topic, um, especially with our homeworks. So uh, segueing there to our homeworks, um, let's start with Marin. Uh, give us a quick summary of your homework and then we'll get into discussing it the homework i assigned is the 2007 movie atonement broad strokes of the storyline of atonement um a young 13 year old girl um sees a situation she doesn't understand involving her sister and her neighbor um and doesn't understand that they are falling in love and so accuses him of raping her cousin and he is thrown in prison, and this timeline happens around World War II. Um, so to um, get out of prison, <laughs> um, he is offered a uh, place in the army. So we contrast uh, him fighting, uh, especially there's a long sequence in the Battle of Dunkirk, with both 
the main character, Bryony, and her sister, Cecilia, becoming nurses. So, um, Marin, you were the one who picked our topic for today. I'm interested to know which came first, uh, wanting to talk about the theme or picking this movie? I will be honest, it was about picking this movie because Pete and I have had a long-running joke about how Atonement and The Notebook are different movies, and while I would never make him watch The Notebook, I would absolutely make him watch Atonement. I, I was perpetually confusing those two movies. I'm like, oh, The Notebook, is that the one with James McAvoy? No, that's the other one. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, so, okay, it wasn't because you were like, oh, those are totally the same movie. I mean, it was because you just, you couldn't remember that they were different movies. It, it's probably because they came out, like, close enough together nope. at, a at a time in my life when I was actively <laughs> not paying any attention to movies called Atonement or The Notebook. Um, so they all blended in my mind. Yeah, no, he he was definitely blending them. Uh. No, it was interesting to me because I watched this movie once a very long time ago uh, because people told me it was very good. Uh, I did not appreciate it, and then I promptly stopped thinking about it uh, until um, you brought it up for homework. So I was uh, interested to know kind of why this movie stuck out to you um, for this theme... So this movie stuck out to me because I think it's one of the most complex portrayals of forgiveness. Like the the structure of it, uh, where at the end we find out that a chunk of the story we have been told is actually the the attempt of forgiveness. I I think is unique. I I don't know of any other story that does that. And I think, too, I appreciate that it's not simple. You you don't come out of the movie feeling like the main character has been forgiven. And so what I think you are left with is both a portrayal of how do we attempt forgiveness and also the idea that forgiveness isn't binary. You're not forgiven or unforgiven. Um, that there are shades of gray in there. And that also, it's okay to have a story where the main character does a terrible thing. And for both reasons within and reasons outside of her control, leaves unforgiven. Yeah, I'm always here for um, unlikable female protagonists. Um, I'm interested in the the concept of Brienne seeking forgiveness. My impression was, and this may be because I didn't quite grok the format of the ending, like in what sequence things are happening, but the scene in which she asks for forgiveness from Cecilia and Robbie, that is fabricated, correct? Like, correct. She, yes. So what... Okay. Her act of forgiveness is is giving them the happy ending in her book. So then is she, so then she's really the the forgiveness that she's seeking is she's trying to forgive herself for doing that. Absolutely. Okay. So how valid is that? How valid do we think that is? <laughs> I don't. I I certainly don't feel like it's valid. I mean, she's a horribly unlikable character. Um. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot, Marin. I'm I'm posing these. Oh no, don't worry. Uh, Pete and I had a whole conversation about this about like okay. after the movie. That I have had lots of time to think think about this. Um, yeah, I and I can't. Re and I'm sorry. I'm not going to harp on continually bringing up the book, but just in this one instance, I think it's useful. In the book, she has a line about the attempt is all. So I think for her, the attempt. To, to get the forgiveness. By, by that, is, do you mean the attempt is all she has? Well, it's both. It's because whether she... Or, or does it mean the attempt is everything? Like, if, as long as you attempt it, that's cool? Or, like, I literally can't be forgiven by these people because they're dead. So the attempt at this point is all I have to go on. I think she's saying both. Because when yeah, she's I constructing it in her book, that scene where she's going and then attempting to get forgiveness she doesn't succeed okay, they, that's she doesn't total, like, 
she doesn't leave being forgiven. But I think then, too, like you said, in the end, when both the people she needs to forgive her are dead, all she has is this attempt. That's absolute nonsense. The... If they're dead, that's totally fine, and I'm on board with the, the attempt. Like, like if, if it's like the attempt is all I have because they're dead, that's fine. I'm on board with that. But not the attempt is everything if they're alive and I, I can be forgiven. That's We'll get into this but later she, in some of the other discussion questions. But she's but I think also talking nonsense. about the attempt for herself to forgive herself. And I, I think there's a part of her that acknowledges that in both situations the forgiveness is out of her her control Hmm. what do i think about the fact that in this situation so she creates this fiction where she gets a chance to ask for cecilia and robbie's forgiveness so this is entirely a scene that she has constructed and she still does not allow herself to get that because she could have written she could have written that scene any way she wanted to and Ultimately, she chooses, is is this her choosing not to forgive herself? Is this her choosing to decide that what she has done is unforgivable? I think this is her choosing to not let herself out easy. Yeah, it, it felt very, like, self-flagellant. Um, and, and I think that's right, that, like, since she did not get forgiven forgiveness in real life, she can't give her fictional self that either. But she can give happiness to the fictional um, uh, uh, other people. Cecilia. Yeah, Robbie and Cecilia. Um, so, you know, she, she had that line earlier about trying to be as honest in her telling of the events as possible. And to me, that is a case of, like, not forgiving herself is the most honest way to do it. And that's kind of it undercut else- by then, you know, them surviving, but... It may also be that she honestly believes that they would not have forgiven her. Mm-hmm. Like she, she thinks that like n- this is how if it had had a chance to play out, this is how it would have been. And her ex maybe because then if if it had happened that way in real life, that would have been something else she had to deal with. So she is also kind of has to come to grips with the fact that if she'd had the chance to ask for forgiveness, she still wouldn't have gotten it. Right. Well, and she leaves that scene, too, on the note of we're going to begin the legal process um, to do what we can to get Robbie's conviction thrown out um, with the complication that the man who actually raped her her cousin uh, is now married to her cousin. Um, yikes. Um, which also, like, legally a wife can't testify against her husband and all that kind of stuff. Um Played by a delightfully mustached and creepy Benedict Cumberbatch. So uh, sleazy. <laughs> I this was definitely a like 2007 movie. I'm like, oh, who are like like it's Shirley Ronan, it's Benedict Cumberbatch, it's young James McAvoy. It was a, a Theon. Who's who. Yeah, Theon's in it. Uh, Alfie Allen. A who's who of attractive British actors. Uh, yep. Um, but yeah, so I think she leaves it on the note of forgiveness would eventually be possible. It may not. But she's going to start the legal proceedings and, and is at least beginning that process. All right. Well, we're definitely going to get into this a lot more as we get to some of the discussion questions. I think because some of the discussion questions are kind of perfectly uh, attuned to this uh, assignment. Um, but let's put a pin in that for now and go on to our next Almost homework. Like we, almost <laughs> like we planned it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of weird how that happened, isn't it? <laughs> Um, so we'll go on to our next homework, which is, uh, Martha, tell us about the walls around us. Uh, if I can. <laughs> um, so the walls around us was a 2013, 2000, 2015 novel, uh, by Nova Rensuma. Uh, it is a YA novel about two girls, Amber and Violet. Uh, it is a braided narrative. So on the one hand you have or a braided narrative told in um, alternating chapters. So on the one hand, you have Amber, who is in a high-security prison for uh, underage girls who have committed uh, violent crimes. Uh, She is there because she killed her stepfather. 
But on the other hand, you have Violet, who is a uh, 17, 18-year-old, uh, about to graduate from high school, a ballet dancer who is headed to Juilliard. And connecting these two disparate narratives is Oriana, who was a friend of Violet's and has been sent to the detention center for the murder of uh, several other ballet dancers. Um it is a magical realism novel, so there's a lot of uh, kind of fantastical elements uh, to it. But basically, the situation is that uh, Violet killed um, two other girls uh, and blamed Oriana, who has been sent to the detention center. As, as soon as he said it was a magical realism novel, I was like, oh, right, it totally is. That's probably why I like it so much. Because um, I'm yes. always here for magical <laughs> realism. And across the table yeah. from me, Marin is making some unhappy faces because <laughs> that is not her game. <laughs> um, I, I really liked this book. Um, it was different. It was interesting reading it like the day after I watched Atonement because in some ways they felt narratively similar. Um, but I was more here for The Walls Around Us than I was for Atonement. Um it made me want to watch Black Swan again, which is always a good thing uh, because of all the ballet stuff. Um, but I, I thought it was a really interesting narrative and um, the ending really, really got me. In a, like, not in an emotional way, but in a like, oh, that's that's a cool, interesting conceit kind of way. So how did you guys read the ending? Because I was on Goodreads uh, reading people's questions about the book because there's a lot of the book that is kind of fluid uh, and open to interpretation uh, yes. particularly I think the ending um, and you know sort of what takes place at the end of the book so what with it being magical realism and all my take is that um, basically they do a time hopping body swap where in Oriana always had been free, and Violet always had been in jail. Yeah, it sounded like they changed the timeline. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the end, it, it was such that Violet essentially took Oriana's place, and then was also, um, also had been poisoned along with all the rest of the girls in Aurora Hills. Yeah, that was how I took it, too. And I actually, I read... Well, um, what are competing... Or alternative interpretations. Well, not it's not an alternative interpretation, uh, but something that kind of helped me uh, lock some stuff into place, and was why I chose it for this particular uh, episode. Was um, so there's a line at the end. Let me see if I can pull that up. Uh, yeah, so there's a line at the end from Amber. So yeah. Amber, you find out, poisons all the girls, poisons all 41 girls at the 42. institution. So they're all, 42 girls. So they're all floating around. And at that, the end yeah, of the Yeah, they're book, all floating around as ghosts. Yes. And yeah. at the end of the book, Violet and a couple of her friends go to the uh, institution to sort of, like, in memoriam for Oriana. Uh, and then we get this line at the very end of the book that from Amber's point of view that says she got her justice thanks to us and thanks to her we will always be watching the road to see who might climb the hill and take the place of one of us to see who might claim our guilt so we could be innocent too. And it's the claim our guilt part that I found really interesting um, because the first time I read it I was reading it as oh Violet falls in a hole and dies and Oriana like steps into her life um but the the phrase claim our guilt i think implies a more purposeful action on violet's part i, to... I think it more implies that the other girls forced violet to claim that guilt yeah i didn't i didn't i, I don't think violet went willingly yeah and this is where this is where I wanted to talk about the difference between forgiveness and absolution because for me it feels like Violet is spending this book 
seeking absolution for what she did, not necessarily forgiveness. But I didn't know if that was me being pedantic over semantics or if there actually is a legit interpretive difference there. Because I don't think she much cares about being forgiven for what she did, but she's clearly carrying around... Well, she, she wouldn't be haunted. She wouldn't be haunted by it if she wasn't carrying some kind of guilt for it. Well, and the guilt she's carrying is clear because she was the one who actually killed those girls and then let her best friend take the fall for it. So, like, she's kind of a monster. Um, yes. <laughs> so, so, like, you know, that that's where we're coming from in this. Um, I think you're right that she doesn't care about forgiveness unless it's... Yeah. Well, and in fact, there's that scene where Ori, presumably Oriana's ghost, point blank asks Violet, aren't you going to say sorry? And Violet refuses to. Because yeah, because at of that point, well, and at that point, she's like, so completely accepted the fiction, like, oh, I blacked out, I couldn't have done it. Yeah. Yeah, so getting back to the, like, semantic part of it, I, I wonder if what you're getting at is that what she is seeking is absolution for herself to be able to go to Juilliard with a clear conscience, to really take up that fiction <laughs> as the truth. Per, do, do we think that forgiveness requires... Um remorse on the part of the the actor and and absolution possibly doesn't um i think i think it's more and pete you have this in our discussion questions i think it's more that forgiveness is a reciprocal act and absolution isn't like you can be um like forgiveness is something that you seek from somebody else okay and then absolution is almost something that like happens to you like you get absolved of your sins um right like you you can be absolved but you can still like i i feel like you can be absolved and not forgiven forgive, yeah well i i feel like the actual distinction and i did not grow up catholic so let's <laughs> let's have that context <laughs> um Neither well, did I. I guess I should at least from say watching movies that take place in Ireland is that um, <laughs> <laughs> absolution, like not only rights the wrong, but basically takes it out of existence. Like my understanding is that when a priest absolves you after, like it's a sacrament. Like when a priest absolves you after a confession, it's like it never happened. In the eyes of God. In the eyes of God. <laughs> nice attempt to never said there. <laughs> um, right. But I think we can use it in a non-religious way as well. Because she's not looking for, for Catholic absolution. She's looking for... No, she's looking for someone to make her, her sin go away, which is why she, you know, put Oriana in prison, because... That way, that was a way that she could like lock it up tidily and not have it uh, affect her. Although, again, I, I think that throughout the book, you see that she's still pretty haunted by uh, her actions. Yeah. One one last thing on this before we go on to our our third homework, um, and it's a bit of a sidebar, which is why I sort of want to just throw it out here. Is sure. Uh, this was a. There were a number of lines in this book that I appreciated a lot because it got at the idea that justice isn't actually fair in America based on wealth. Um, multiple lines where she was like, well, she's a, a rich, white, nice-looking girl, so she got off okay and like was allowed to go and, and was able to afford a good lawyer and everything, whereas Oriana um, was, was not wealthy and was not well-liked in town, and so she was uh, obviously convicted. Um, and, and I just really appreciated that in this YA book, we're, we're dealing with both, um, what you look like on the outside versus who you are on the inside ideas, but also the idea that like, unfortunately for all that we say, wealth really has a, a huge role to play in the justice system. Yeah. It, 
I, I really think, and we are not going to spend time on this <laughs> nope, now. Nope, we totally might come back to it later. Um, no, I just want to, I just, I think people really need to dispense with the idea that young adult literature can't get into, like, serious social issues like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Um, cool. Pete. Yeah. I need you to tell me, well, first I need you to describe your homework, and then I need you to tell me why you picked these episodes. Right. So I picked a pair of Doctor Who episodes. They were, um... They're from season nine, uh, Peter Capaldi's Doctor, um, The Girl Who Died, and then the next episode is The Woman Who Lived. Um, the Girl That Died follows... Uh, me, so Doctor Who's a time-traveling alien, right? Good. Um, uh, he, he travels back in time to Viking times, um, befriends a young girl named Ashilder, played by Maisie Williams. Um, adventures happen, Ashilder dies... And the doctor saves her by implanting some magic chip in her that uh, brings her back to life and also causes her to live forever. Um, he gives her a second chip to give to someone else and then flies away in his magic box. Um, that's the first episode. The second episode is um, he re-meets a shielder in the 1600s where she is a rich countess slash robber um and has basically being immortal has wrecked her emotionally mentally she has seen everyone she loved die uh, while she never ages um lost a bunch of kids to black death um uh and and basically is is unhappy with the doctor blaming the doctor for that um in classic doctor who fashion this episode has big interesting ideas mixed with a silly looking fire breathing lion person um who is the weak point of the episode in a big way um but it's basically the doctor and and Maisie williams running around trying to the doctor trying to fix her again uh because she has sort of lost her way as an ageless immortal um I picked it because the, what, what I really wanted to watch in this was the second episode, but I thought that to get the emotional resonance of that, you kind of had to see the first episode. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I, I picked it because I thought it was so fascinating that it's it's something that you don't often see in Doctor Who, where you look at the consequences of his actions in a meaningful way. Um, you had the doctor kind of had to forgive her for what she did, but there's a lot of her needing to forgive the doctor for making her immortal, basically against her will and without her knowledge. I was, I was going to say, I have a huge issue with you <laughs> bringing up first that, well, that the doctor has to forgive her <laughs> well, that, that for was my, what she yeah, did. No. That, I, I brought no. that up first because that was my throwaway one. Um, and the meat of it was her forgiving him for what he did. Yeah, so what did you think of it? I am not a Doctor Who person. Mm-hmm. Um, I, <sighs> I, I, I... I will be the first to admit <laughs> that, like many good Doctor Who episodes, the bad guys in both of these episodes are silly and absolutely the weak link of it. Okay, um, so here's here's the problem that I had with it. The entire second episode is the doctor trying to convince himself that he didn't make a mistake in how he saved her life. The entire second episode exists because he feels, because he is, and I mean, I guess this is true for all of the homework that we did, but I guess I'm less interested in watching old white men try and make themselves feel better about the bad decisions that they make. <laughs> Um, and it, it, it goes back to the decision that he makes in the first episode that we watched. So like she dies because of a plan that he makes. So his saving her life the, in the first place is him trying to make himself feel better for making that decision. And then he spends the second episode trying to, like get her to relearn how to have a conscience so that he again feels better for making the decision to save his life. It's like Macy Williams character is totally incidental to the doctor's self-serving like 
trying to assuage his own guilt and how like she she doesn't she is secondary to him um yeah trying to make himself feel better welcome to doctor who it's so frustrating that throughout that second episode she is continually asking take me with you so that i can be around another person who's also immortal and he consistently refuses without explaining himself until the very end. And then he talks about how she needs to interact with mortality to, to keep that confidence that he is trying to make sure she still has. So it's also like, it's also so frustrating that he can't be bothered to explain himself until the very end. Doubly so because the entire premise of Doctor Who is that he runs around the galaxy with companions. So why he's refusing to take her as a companion is kind of a, a, a serious weak point in in it. And I thought his explanation was pretty weak as well. I just thought his total seeming, seeming uh, lack of regard for her was hard for me to watch. Like, it felt like all of his decisions and everything that he did was motivated by a desire to make himself feel less guilty uh like the rather than rather than actual care for her well-being in a big way the doctor is often written as a dude running around trying to fix things but he's not necessarily fixing them because like he's fixing them because on the one hand he wants to save people but it's because he wants to save people, not because, um, you know, people need saving. Well, if that distinction also makes sense. The anonymous people. He. It's not that he wants to save a shielder specifically. I think he feels like this is left unfinished, and I have to make sure this person is okay. And it doesn't matter, like the specifics of a shielder's life and a shield like what a shielder is facing as someone who has watched every person she has ever loved come into her life and then die it yeah I'm, I'm... so pete what function what function do you think forgiveness is playing here who is 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 uh is shielders like who, who has to forgive who for this narrative to work? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that it's a shielder has to forgive the doctor for making her immortal and then also abandoning her afterwards. Um, and I think at the end she does, um, or at least comes to terms with it. I, I guess I don't know if I would classify it as true forgiveness um, so much as sort of a, a reset. Um, well, I think she's found a way forward. Yeah. Right, but she could do that without forgiving him, perhaps. And I think perhaps her encountering him again, and at least his cursory effort to be, to check in on her, which didn't start as any active effort to actually check in on her, <laughs> right. BT dubs, um, I think does at least remind her of the importance of humanity not like as a specific but as a like having humanity and so i think she does resolve because she talks about the end of the episode how she is going to take care of those that the doctor leaves and so i think at least she resolves to care about other people again uh, so that's a good segue into our first discussion question, which is how successful are characters in achieving forgiveness? Um, and I think for this one, we can kind of just go around the horn and talk about um, the three main characters in our three homeworks, whether they were successful or not. Uh, so for Atonement, I don't think Brienne was successful because uh, the people who needed to forgive her died before they could forgive her. So um, not a lot of forgiveness going on there. I don't think her well, self-forgiveness counts. Yep, go ahead. I, that was going to be my follow-up question, because I think that what she... I mean, obviously she knows she can't get forgiveness from dead people, so I think that her story is really her trying to make peace with herself. So I would, I would ask, is she successful in forgiving herself for what she did? You clearly don't think that 
self-forgiveness is a valid or viable form of forgiveness. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess it's... I have much less sympathy for Brienne in this novel, such that I might say um, it's not for her. But in other cases, I might be more <laughs> compassionate. Uh, this, this might entirely be my take on this character and this work. Well, and I think Bryony, especially in the first part of the movie, is so obnoxious and it, it's just difficult uh, that I think we as an audience, even if she comes to terms with herself, I think we as an audience are still not going to be rooting for her. Uh, I, I think that I wouldn't describe what she has as self-forgiveness. I think she finds a peace, um, and I think she has been able to move on and do productive things in her life, but I don't know that she has forgiven herself. And I think, as we talked about earlier, that last scene where she leaves on the path to forgiveness from Cecilia and Robbie, but she's not there yet, and she doesn't give herself that. And I think... While she has achieved peace and become a successful adult and a successful novelist, I think there is a little piece of her that has not forgiven herself and probably never will. Martha, I, I agree with uh, I agree with Marin. I think that the the forgiveness that she's seeking is she is seeking to come to terms with herself for what she did and absent the you know absent being able to to. Uh, get forgiveness from the people that she wronged uh the only forgiveness that she has left is that which she can give herself and i don't think she ultimately i don't think she's able to do that martin brought up an interesting point that i i would also be interested in for all three of these which is audience forgiveness of the character um you, you all think that, like, obviously she forgives herself. I think that that's true as well. That's sort of the, the coda scene. Um, but myself as an audience member doesn't forgive her, I guess. Um, and and I, I have a feeling that in Doctor Who, for example, Martha, you might not forgive the Doctor um, as an audience member, even if Maisie Williams does. Um, so So that's, I guess, an interesting sidebar. We don't have to go too deeply into it, but it's... It's an idea to, to bring up of, like, can the characters achieve forgiveness? And if so, do the does the audience share that feeling? Um, no, that's that's an interesting question, because I I do think that we are also I mean, usually for narratives to to work, you don't have to necessarily like your protagonist, but I think you do have to you have to be on their side in some manner because otherwise it's like well why am i why am i engaging with this thing if i don't if i don't sympathize or empathize or in some way you know come to to connect with this main character and i think that um that is something in terms of these narratives that i had not actually thought of before but do i as an audience member forgive uh these characters for their actions and at the end of the day for Brienne, i don't i think that 13 is old enough to know that lying is wrong <laughs> um, yeah. uh you know what she did was born out of impulsiveness and i think jealousy and ultimately selfish reasons and she had time you know, and and I think that her further inaction when it mattered was born out of embarrassment or shame or not wanting to admit that she was wrong. And ultimately, the deaths of her sister and Robbie are on her, and I don't forgive her for that. Uh, maybe not her sister, definitely Robbie. I mean, her her sister died in a well, bomb shelter, you... so like I'm okay, like that can be on on freak nature of war. Yeah. I, okay. I think part of or at the... least the facts. At least the fact that her sister and Robbie did not get a life together. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I think one thing Atonement as a story is trying to do is tell this smaller tragedy within the whole tragedy of World War II. Um, and I think, and I, 
I think one thing it's doing is showing that no matter what, Robbie and Cecilia may have died because they were young people around World War II, but certainly Bryony's actions put them in situations that brought them closer to that war. And I don't... And yeah, the movie does lay it out explicitly that the reason Robbie is a private in the army as opposed to getting some type of officer commission is that they that offered him a way out from prison. So he probably would not have been in literally the mud in the same way. Yep. Right. All right, uh, well, let's, let's quickly go around the horn with the other two. Uh, Doctor Who, do we think that the Doctor has achieved forgiveness by the end. And also, let's throw in this sidebar question, has the audience forgiven the Doctor? Um, for me, I'm sympathetic to the Doctor, so I'm going to go ahead and say yes and yes. I think the Doctor has certainly forgiven himself at the end of the episode. I think, too, nominally, Ashilda has forgiven him. I think Ashilda has found a place where she can move on from. And that might be the most important component of whether or not he is forgiven. I, uh, he's still, it's a difficult to empathize with him in this situation. Because it's like, dude, man, bro, you were just awful. Like, just stop. Just stop. Um, but on the other hand, he has at least made some type of effort that has achieved something. I also think, and this may be me getting too meta-narrative into it, um, so Brienne is an author. So on some level, for her works, she's also seeking audience acknowledgement. And I don't think the doctor cares whether I, as an audience member, forgive him or not. Mm-hmm. Like, he's he's trying to make himself feel better by getting that from Ishilda and I think that in terms of the narrative whether or not I forgive him the show and the doctor don't super care <laughs> about that uh, um, would, that uh, may- I would push back a little bit that Bryony is probably not going to live to see the audience reaction to her book um, so I think for her, or at least the way she framed it in that last interview, this is kind of a shot in the dark. This is, she's throwing this book out into the world, which she is not going to get to live to see. Yes and no. I mean, it, the implication here is that she's a fairly successful author. So she knows that she has an audience. People have been reading her work. People have been buying her work. She knows that she has... She knows that people are going to read whatever she throws out into the world. Which maybe that's why she saved this book for last. Because it's the most important one to her that people read and understand what she did and where she's coming from. And she knows she's going to get that because she knows that she's been successful before. But it's not like she's going to get to live to see the reactions. Like, she is not going to get that validation from her audience because she's going to be dead. Oh, true. Um, Let's jump over to the walls around us then. Uh, Again, because I just want to keep these as a quick... Yeah, for sure. Who gets forgiveness and who doesn't. Um, I guess the person who needs forgiveness in the walls around us is going to be Violet. Um, Although you could say that... uh, uh, Who's the... Amber. um, Amber. Um, Yeah, I was going to say, I actually think... Uh, Violet's story ends up kind of being front and center because you know more what's going on more so like through the whole book. But I don't think that as an audience member, I'm expected to forgive Violet. I (laughs) do think... Well, right, because she's horrible. Um, But I do think that the character who is looking for my forgiveness as as the consumer of the media is Amber. Um, And I gotta say, I am not on board with that because I, I thought it was nonsense that she went in and poisoned everyone i i killed did not, everybody yeah i did not get where that was coming from at all yeah that did not have the build-up it needed to for me to understand her actions i that might have been the point at which i like threw the kindle down on the couch and was like huh? what is well, happening so no in the, in the in the reality of this book um 
Amber doing that is what allows Oriana at the end to walk free in the world again. Like, that makes sense on the third time around, or like when they're doing ghosts and they're trapped in their time loop. Um, But it doesn't make sense the first time. Like, the inciting incident that killed them all, it doesn't make sense that that would happen. So the world of the narrative is not the world that we live in, obviously, because it is a magical (laughs) realism narrative. In the world of this book, Amber killing all of the inmates, the implication is now that they have a chance to achieve what Oriana has achieved. They would not otherwise... I mean, these are not girls who are going to be out on appeal. These are girls who uh, society has put away basically for life. Um, some some so of them by... shorter sentences. Yeah. You, you're Amber right that some of them... Just about to get out. And so then by... So by Amber's justification, she's giving these girls... Well, not Amber's justification, but the book's justification is that now these girls have a chance to have somebody else subsume their guilt and allow them a place in the world without carrying the guilt of what they did to get into prison. So by the logic of the book, and I understand that that is different from the logic of (laughs) you and I, um, do we forgive Amber for what she did? Absolutely not. Sorry, this is why I don't read magical <laughs> realism, because I think this is nonsense. She killed 41 people. No. <laughs> um, I get where you're coming from, Martha. I still have to come down with a hard no. Um, well, and I, I should, I should, I guess, say that I don't really care Sure. I was not as emotionally invested in Amber as I was in Oriana. Yep. So at the end of the day, her actions for me are more like this is what the story is hinging on rather than something that I have like an emotional investment in. So I'm just trying to, I think, I'm trying to get across, I think, where the book is coming from in terms of Amber's actions and what place that has in the story. Mm-hmm. My enjoyment of the book also did not hinge on whether or not I forgave Amber, and it sort of sounds like it did for Marin. <laughs> yeah, because for me, the farther we got into it, because they had built up Amber to be a relatively likable character, it felt like it betrayed what we had seen of Amber earlier. Because in the first, like, three quarters of the book, I was rooting for her. And then it was like, wait, what? Huh? No! Um, and it, it just, it, I understand where you're coming from the logic of the book. But again, as someone who didn't have the time to read it through three times, it felt jarring. And it felt completely frustrating. That's fair. That's funny. That's how I felt about the ending of Atonement. <laughs> um, forgiveness. Oh my god! Or at least the our first homeworks. time. <laughs> the first time I watched Atonement, when you got to the part where you realize it's all a lie. Uh, mm. <laughs> yep. That, yep. <laughs> Different conversation, but had a similar uh, take on it. I'm glad that we yeah, all like, chose homeworks that, no! that undercut the ending. <laughs> um. Um, So let's move on to our last discussion question. We've already talked about um, if forgiveness needs to be reciprocal and uh, forgiveness versus absolution. Um, And we've just been talking about what role forgiveness plays in the narrative, especially in the walls around us. Uh, But we haven't yet talked about should characters pay a price in their quest for forgiveness and um, what a a reasonable price is. Um, So we'll just open the floor to that. Anyone who wants to jump in. Uh, So Bryony pays the price that she does not go to university um, and instead chooses to become a nurse during the war, um, which I think she feels is part of her atonement process. And in fact, she like mirrors what her sister did going to the exact same hospital. Um, That one seems weird to me because it's literally World War II. Like, I, I feel like not going to university and going to be a nurse maybe it's her self-atonement but also it's like it's world war ii everyone go be a nurse um or join the army except that Brienne, 
Brienne is in a wealthy enough family that she probably didn't have to do that if she didn't want to. Oh, I'm totally with you. Like, she didn't have to, but also, like, you know, British solidarity and all that, right, right? Uh, go go join the army. Well, go be a nurse. Well, too, it's only 1940, so it's relatively early on in the war. So, very likely, Brienne would have mm. in some way contributed to the war effort, but completely sidestepping her university experience... Um, yeah, is was very unusual for a girl of her family's wealth. It would feel like a bigger price to pay if it wasn't literally World War II, is all I'm saying. No, that's totally fair. Well, but if it if it wasn't literally World War II, I, don't, I, I, I feel like you, you, you can't take that piece out of anything and still have it be coherent like <laughs> right, right, if it right, wasn't right. literally world war ii none of this would have happened and we wouldn't be talking about this movie <laughs> De- definitely definitely true <laughs> um let's let's pull back a little and just ask like should characters need to pay a price for forgiveness is is um is achieving forgiveness something that requires some sort of sacrifice inherently or can it be um simply remorse and then move on well, I think you have to earn it in some way. And I think that talking about it in terms of earning it means that, yeah, you have to show contrition. You have to, um, you can't just be like, hey, I screwed up. Forgive me. Yes. Cool. Done. Like, that's not satisfying. That doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Especially if we're talking in terms of a narrative, I do feel that, like, narratively speaking, it has to feel earned. And that was one of my problems with the Doctor Who episodes is that I didn't feel like his forgiveness was earned because it all felt very self-satisfying to me. I think we, and I think this goes back to what is the character ostensibly feeling versus what we as an audience observe. I believe that the Doctor feels like his actions are his acts that deserve forgiveness. Like, I think he feels that what he does to make a shield of feel better, that is what earns him his forgiveness. Whether it's we in an audience look at that and are like, dude, you left the girl alone for 800 years. Like, one week of attempt is really less than a drop in the bucket. But that's what he sees as the acts that earn his forgiveness. So I think there's that distinction, too. What acts do we as an audience feel like are enough versus what what acts the character feels are enough? And I think, too, that's something interesting about Violet, where there's literally no attempt. And, Martha, I like your theory that we as an audience aren't, like, there's no reason for us narratively to forgive Violet. We're not supposed to. It's really about Amber um, because she doesn't attempt anything, um, even <laughs> yeah. actions that would make her feel like she is earning forgiveness. Well, it, it sounds like we're all on board with the idea that characters need to earn the forgiveness, which requires some sort of price to pay. Um, and it also sounds like the two of you agree that the doctor did not pay, I, I don't want to say did not pay a high enough price, but like did not satisfactorily clear the bar for at least audience forgiveness um too much of a hand wavy narrative which makes it not satisfying i also want to say that i do think that part of the way that doctor who works is assuming some sort of um emotional investment on behalf of the viewer and i have no emotional connection to him so i'm not inclined to be sympathetic to him Emotional like investment might be strong, but you're definitely supposed to be sympathetic to him and like rooting and for since him. I, right. And since I don't watch the show, I'm not a big Doctor Who person. Like I did. Yeah, I'm not a Doctor Who person. I have no sort of emotional fallback to be like. Well, in this case, he's being terrible, but I remember when I really liked it when he did this other thing, so I'm going to feel more sympathetic to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't have enough, and I and also I mean, I think not that's... regularly watch the show, 
that you're expected to have built up enough goodwill towards him. Yeah, and I think that's the case with any long-running TV show. Like, that's not a phenomenon that is um, only inherent in Doctor Who. It's just, it's not a show that I have a relationship with. Mm -hmm. So I don't have anything to be, I don't have any goodwill inherently built up to him to kind of cover for the fact that in this instance, I think he's being pretty awful. (laughs) There's, I mean, Doctor Who is always written from the point of view that the Doctor is doing something good. Um, and so that's how it colors everything. Like, unless he makes a mistake, but then it's a mistake, whatever. Like, so, so it, it, it colors it when the writers and the show have one point of view and you're watching it being like, this is nonsense. He is not doing something good. He's doing something awful. Um, and the show is saying like, oh no, look, he's, he's doing such a good job at it. It's funny because um, for me, I've had this exact conversation about Michael Scott in the office as someone who did not watch it until last year and had a very bad cold and ended up binge watching quite a bit of it i was like how did people put up with him and then i heard from multiple people like no we love michael scott like just keep it keep with it i think it's that same story all right well that's all the time we have for this week of did you do your homework um, this is, again, the first episode where we're having our rotating third chair. So, Marn, thank you again for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. Next week, we're going to have my friend Corey Ruig on. He's a faithful show listener. Um, and he is introducing a new homework uh, media for us. He's assigning us a video game. Uh, I'm game... very excited about this, actually. <laughs> and we'd just been talking a few months ago that, like, it's a shame video games are so hard to assign because we can't really, in fairness, assign, like, Mass Effect because you can't really play that over, like, in a reasonable time frame. Um, the game that Corey is assigning us is called Gone Home. It is available on Steam and possibly other places games are available. I'm not really sure. Um, he says it takes I about two hours I don't actually think so. so. No? Just Steam? Yeah, I looked up... I looked up um, average playtime, and it seems to be that if you're going for 100% completion, it takes about three hours, but otherwise, average playtime is like two, two and a half hours. Which is completely reasonable um, for homework assignment. The last time I checked, the last time I checked on Steam, it was uh, it was a five dollar game on Steam. I don't know if that's still true or if that was like a sale price, but um, yeah, should not be very expensive. Uh, to pick up for anyone interested in playing along with us. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's a it's a new genre of game. I think it's called a walking game or something like that, where it, it's it's a first-person game, but it's not a shooter. It's not an action game. Um, it's more like a puzzle exploration. It, it, it's very similar to Myst. Um, I was going to say, it's not new. I just think that it's getting to be more popular. I would call yeah. it like an investigative game. Um, it sounds like something like... Um, uh, what was the Ubisoft game where you play a ghost trying to solve your own murder? I think Spectre. Oh, I, I heard about that, but no way I will ever come up with a name for that. Um, or, or like Firewatch or um, that modern puzzle solving game. Yeah. That's that's specific. So um, it's an investigative story game. Yeah. Um, so we're looking forward to that. That's next episode. Um, that's Corey's homework. Uh, Martha, what are you assigning? Oh, I was going to say, do we want to give the theme for next week? I was going to do that at the end, but I can do that now, too. Um, oh, sure. Cool. Whatever. So, so the theme that we're doing for this is um, basically you can't go home again. Um, so looking at at homecomings and what happens sort of when you go away from home and try to come back. Um, what what has changed? Uh, th- that sort of idea. Um, Corey is assigning Gone Home. Martha, how about you? I am assigning the 2014 uh, Marvel film Captain America: The Winter Soldier. Excellent. Um, I, that m- is easily my top three it's Marvel the, movies. It's the best Marvel movie. It, Let's just get that one out of the way. It fights with Avengers for my top slot. No. <laughs> Avengers is very good. Avengers is the best Hulk movie that marvel has made um but in yeah 
don't disagree with that. <laughs> I'll fight you. <laughs> <laughs> We're fighting over whether it's number one or number two so out of like yes. 30 movies. So, yes. um, well, for, for fight me. me. <laughs> um, don't at me, though. <laughs> um, all right. I'm assigning uh, what I'm a little bit surprised of is our first Discworld book. Um, for this podcast, I'm assigning Terry Pratchett's The Fifth Elephant, which is one of the um, Sam Vimes uh, Discworld books. Um, Discworld is a sprawling comic fantasy novel by the late, great Terry Pratchett. And I... World of novels. World of novels, yeah. I, I love every single one of them um, to varying degrees. Fifth Elephant is a, a great one. Um, it's Yeah, I'm excited about this one. When's the last time you read it? Um, like ages ago I mean, or more recently? No, I, the the Vimes books are my favorites. Yeah, same. So I reread them pretty frequently. I also wrote an anthropology paper on the Fifth Elephant when I was in college. Hmm. So I'm didn't realize we had an expert know. on the podcast about it. <laughs> uh, it's it is it is um yeah like I said the Vimes books in general are my favorites. Well. Yeah, um, without getting too into the uh, tangled relationship I have with Discworld, um, are some of my favorites. And The Fifth Elephant in particular, I have a very great affection for. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, those are our three homeworks, and we'll be talking about them and the theme of You Can't Go Home Again in two weeks. To wrap up the show, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere else fine podcasts can be found, which you probably already knew because you're listening to this podcast right now. Uh, please rate and review us on iTunes. That's how we uh, more people can find out about us, how the iTunes algorithm kind of works. Um, so uh, definitely please take a second out of your time and give us a review, give us a rating on iTunes or wherever else you're listening to this from. Our home on the web is homeworkpodcast.com, uh, where you're updating that, in theory, twice a week, sometimes a little bit uh, less frequently. Uh, Martha, I know you're doing a much better job than I am at updating that uh, site, but you can see the show notes there. You can see the discussion questions and any additional material that we're going to be posting. You can find us on Twitter at DYDYH Podcast. That's DYDYH Podcast. You can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com, and you can check us out on Facebook at Did You Do Your Homework. Uh, feel free to send us recommendations for topics, for homework assignments, tell us what you think of the show, ask questions. Uh, we'll read any fan letters on air if you uh, want us to. Um, and we're always uh, happy to take your suggestions for either themes or homework assignments. Martha, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter or Instagram is the name of that other thing that I use, uh, at Magical Martha. And Marin, where can people find you? Uh, I can be found on Twitter and Instagram uh, at A underscore star underscore danced. And you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O 3000. I'm talking about pop culture and politics. And that's going to do us for the show. Um, talk to you all in two weeks. Class dismissed. Yeah, see, I when Marn, when you picked it, I I thought that it was appropriate that forgiveness was our theme for the episode because I forgive you for making me watch this movie again.